0: Chapter Four Part H of Greener Than You Think. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Greener Than You Think by Ward Moore. Chapter Four Part H with two-thirds of the country absorbed and a hundred fifty million people squeezed into what was left economic conditions became worse than ever no european ghetto was as crowded as our cities and no overpopulated countryside farmed so intensively to so little purpose An almost complete cessation of employment except in the remnant of the export trade, valueless money, English shillings and pound notes illegally circulated being the prized medium of exchange, starvation only irritated rather than relieved by the doles of food seized from the farmers and grudgingly handed out to the urban dwellers. Each election saw another party in power, the sole demand of the voters being for an administration capable of stopping the grass since none was successful the dissatisfaction and anger grew together with the panic and dislocation messiahs and furors sprang up thickly riots in all cities were daily occurrences rating no more than obscure paragraphs while in many areas gangs of hoodlums actually maintained themselves in power for weeks at a time ruling their possessions like feudal baronies and exacting tribute from all travelers through their domain Immigration had long ago been stopped, but now the government, in order to preserve what space was left for genuine Americans, canceled the naturalization of all foreign-born and ordered them immediately deported. All Jews who had been in the country less than three generations were shipped to Palestine, and the others deprived of political rights in order to encourage them to leave also. The Negroes, who except for a period less than a decade in length had never had any political or civil rights, planned a mass migration to Africa, a project enthusiastically spurred by such elder statesmen as the learned Maybank and the judicious Rankin. This movement proved abortive when statisticians showed there were not enough liquid assets among the colored population to pay a profit on their transportation an attempt to oust all catholics failed also for the rather odd reason that many of the minor protestant sects joined in a body to oppose it the latter-day saints now busy building new deseret in central australia and the church of christ Scientist, as well as the episcopalians Dawiites, shakers christadelphians and the congregation of the chapel of the former and latter reigns presented a united front for tolerance and equity an astonishing byproduct of the national despair and turmoil was the feverish activity in all fields of creative endeavor novels streamed from the presses volumes of poetry became substantial items on publishers lists and those which failed to find a publisher were mimeographed and peddled to a receptive public while painters working with renaissance enthusiasm turned out great canvases as fast as their brushes could spread the oils we had suddenly become a nation madly devoted to the arts when orpheus chrysad's devilgrass symphony was first played in carnegie hall an audience three times as great as that admitted had to be accommodated outside with loudspeakers and when the awesome crescendo of horns drums and broken crockery rubbed over slate surfaces announced the climax of the sixth movement the crowds wept even for mozart the hall was full or practically full in the lively arts the impact of the grass was more overt on the comic page superman daily pushed it back and there was great regret his activities were limited to a four-color process while Terry Lee and Flash Gordon, ever inspirited by the sharp outlines of mammary glands, also saved the country. Even Lil Abner and Snuffy Smith battled the vegetation, while no one but Jiggs remained absolutely impervious. The green grass blues was heard on every radio and came from every adolescent's phonograph until it was succeeded by Itty Bitty Seed Made Awful Nasty Weed. Perhaps the most notable feature of this period was a preoccupation with permanency. Jerry-building, architectural mode since the first false front was erected over the first small-town store, practically disappeared. The skyscrapers were no longer steel skeletons with thin facings of stone hung upon them like a slattern's apron, while the practice of daubing mud on chicken wire hastily laid over paper was discontinued. Everyone wanted to build for all time, even though the grass might seize upon their effort next week. In New York, the Cathedral of St. John the Divine was finally completed, and a new one dedicated to St. George begun. The demand for enduring woods replaced the market for green pine, and men planned homes to accommodate their great-grandchildren and not to attract prospective buyers before the plaster cracked. Naturally, forward-looking men like Stuart Thario and myself, though we had every respect for culture, were not swamped by this sudden urge to encourage the effervescent side of life. Our feet were still upon the ground, and though we knew symphonies and novels and cathedrals had their place, it was important not to lose sight of fundamentals. While we approved in principle the desire for permanency, we took reality into account— We had every faith in the future of the country, being certain a way would be found before long to stop the encroachments of the weed. Nevertheless, as a proper precaution, a safeguarding counterbalance to our own enthusiastic patriotism, we invested our surplus funds in consuls and European bonds, while hastening our plans for new factories on other continents i'm sure george thario must have been a great cross to his father although the general never spoke of him save in the most affectionate terms living like a tramp he sent a snapshot once showing him with a long starveling beard dressed in careless overalls his arm over the shoulder of a slovenly looking girl he stayed always on the edge of the advancing weed moving eastward only when forced he wrote from galena eagle forgotten THE REJECTED, ACCEPTED, FOR YESTERDAY'S EAGLE IS TODAY'S, THE HERO IS MAN, AND MAN HIS OWN HERO. I WAS WITH HIM WHEN HE DIED, AND WHEN HE DIED AGAIN, AND A HUNDRED MILES TO THE SOUTH IS ANOTHER EAGLE FORGOTTEN, AND ALL THE PRAIRIES GREEN ONCE MORE WILL BE AS THEY WERE BEFORE MEN INSULTED THEM. O EAGLE FORGOTTEN! O STAINED PRAIRIE! O GALLOWS, THIRSTY MOB, KNIFE, TORCH, REVOLVER! contumely parochialism, the short vision forever gone, and the long vision, too, the eagle forgotten is the national bird, the great merging with the greater, so gained too late a vision and saw the hope that was despair. I named the catalogue of states and the great syllables rolled from my tongue to echo silence. My sister, my bride, gone and gone the conestoga wagons have no more faint ruts to follow the little big horn is a combination of letters the marking sunflowers exist no more we destroyed we preempted we are destroyed and we have been thrust out illinois admitted to the union on such-and-such a date the little giant rubs stubby fingers through pompous hair heavy with bear grease The honorable Abe in Springfield's most expensive broadcloth, necktie in the latest mode, but pulled aside to free an eager Adam's apple. The drunken tanner, punctual with the small man's virtues, betrayed and dying painfully with so much blood upon his hands. And the eagle himself, forgotten, and now again forgotten. I move once more, step by step I give it up, the land we took and the land we made. Each foot I resign leaves the rest more precious. O precious land, O dear and fruitful soil! Its clods are me. I eat them, give them back. The bond is indissoluble. Even the land gone is still mine. My bones rest in it, I have eaten of its fruits and laid my mark on it all of which was a long-winded way of saying the grass was overrunning illinois in contrast i cannot forbear to quote le Fassassi, though his faults at the opposite end of the scale were just as glaring it is in kentucky now birth state of abraham lincoln sixteenth president of the united states a country which once stretched south of the forty-ninth parallel from the atlantic to the pacific i have been traveling extensively in what is left of lincoln's nation dukes remarked chesterston don't emigrate this country was settled by the poor and thriftless and now few more than the poor and thriftless remain in it let me try to present an overall picture what is left of the country has become a nineteenth-century ireland with all economic power in the hands of absentees it is not that everyone below the level of a millionaire is too stupid to foresee possibility of complete destruction or the middle and lower classes virtuously imbued with such fanatical patriotism they are prepared for mass suicide rather than leave because dukes are emigrating and sending the price of shipping space into brackets which make the export of any commodity but diamonds or their own hides a dubious investment Even the pawning of all the family assets would not buy steerage passage for a year-old baby. Besides, there are not enough bottoms in the world to transport a 150 million people. If the grass is not stopped except for a negligible few, it will cover Americans when it covers America. No wonder a strange and conflicting spirit animates our people. Apathy? Yes, there is apathy. You can see it on the faces in a line of relief clients wondering how long an industrially stagnant country can continue their dole, even though now it consists of nothing but unpalatable chemicals, so-called concentrates. Despair? Certainly. The riots and lootings, especially the intensified ones recently in Cleveland and Pittsburgh, are symptoms of it the overcrowded churches the terrific increase in drugging and drinking the sex orgies which have been taking place practically in the open in baltimore and philadelphia and boston are stigmata of desperation hope i suppose there is hope congress sits in uninterrupted session and senators lend their voices night and day to the destruction of the grass the federal disruptions commission has published the eleventh volume of its report and is currently holding hearings to determine how closely the extinct buffalo grass is related to cynodon dactylon every research laboratory in the country except those whose staffs and equipment have been moved with their proprietary industries is expending its energies in seeking a salvation perhaps only in the deep south as yet protected by the width of the lower mississippi is there something approaching a genuine hope although ironically that may be the product of ignorance here the overlords have gone and the poor whites unsupported by an explicit kinship have withdrawn into complete listlessness some black men have fled but to most the grass is a mere bogey incapable of frightening those who have survived so much Now for the first time since 1877 the polls are open to all and there are again negro governors and black legislatures. And they are legislating as if forever. Farm tenancy has been abolished. The great plantations have been expropriated and made cooperative. The Homestead Act of 1862 has been applied in the South and every citizen is entitled to claim a quarter section there is a great deal of laughter at this childish lawmaking but it goes on changing the face of the region the lawmakers themselves not at all averse to the joke everything le Fassassi wrote was not only dull but biased and unjust as well it was true capital was leaving the country rapidly but what other course had it to stay and attempt to carry on industry in the midst of the demoralization was obviously impractical the plants remained and when a way was found to conquer the grass we would be glad to reopen them for this would be a practical course just as the flight of capital was a practical course standards of living were now so reduced in the united states it would be more profitable to employ cheap american labor than overpaid latin or european I had now no fixed abode, dividing my time between Rio and Buenos Aires, Melbourne and Manchester. General Thario and his family lived in Copenhagen, overseeing our continental properties, now of equal importance with the South American holdings. Before leaving, and indeed on every trip back home, he visited his son, no easy thing to do what with the young man's constant movement and the extreme difficulty of going from east to west against the torrent pouring in the opposite direction. Joe had married the female of the snapshot, or contracted some sort of permanent alliance with her. I never got it quite straight, and the Tharios were deplorably careless about such details and she proved as eccentric as he was no appeal to self-interest no pleading he forego his morbid preoccupation with the grass for the sake of his family could move them a w you have seen it heard it smelled it can't you explain miraculously touched with the gift of lucidity for fact as you are for the fictions of production overhead and dividends oh not to mama either she understands better than i or not at all but to the old man or connie as a child you learn for the first time of death the heart is shuttered in a little cell too cruel for breathing the sun is gray in an instant you forget the sky is bright the blood pounds years later the adolescent falls in love with death primps his spirit for it recalls in unpresumptuous brotherhood Shelley and Keats and Chatterton. Afterward, the flush fades. We are reconciled to life, but the promise is still implicit. Now, however, it must be earned, awaited. Haste would destroy the savor. The award assured, pace becomes dignified. But death is not death life is never mocked the grass is not death any more than it is evil the grass is the grass it is me and i am it in my father's house there are many mansions if it were not so i would not have told you no i suppose not yet it hurts my liver to offer the old boy incomprehensible reasons or verbiage like compulsion neurosis when all he wants is to protect me from my own impulses as he protected me from the army florence and i delight in him he comes again next week if possible but we cannot convey to him the unthinkableness of leaving i heard about this visit later from the general joe had scoured chicago for the alcoholic commodities now practically unprocurable and returned in triumph to the couple's furnished room there they entertained him with two bottles of Cointreau and a stone demijohn of corn whiskey. Touched, filial affection, even drank the fiddle and stuff, no wonder it was still available in the drought. Better son a man never had. Girls, all right, moved in circles, perhaps not accustomed, bit rough in speech, but heart of gold, give you the shirt right off her back, um, manner of speaking, know what I mean but she would not add her persuasions to those of the general. Joe's got to stay. It's not something he sat down and thought up, the way you planned dinner or whether blue goes good with your new permanent. He's got to stay because he's got to stay. And of course so do I. We couldn't be satisfied anywhere we couldn't see the grass. Life's too dull away from it. But of course that's only part. It's too big to explain. But George... Joe, as you call him, highly talented, sensitive, shouldn't be allowed to decay, the general argued. Fascination? Understand, but effort of will. Break the spell. Europe? Birthplace of culture. Reflection? Give him a proper perspective chance to do things. Even when the evening lengthened and he became more lucid under the stimulus of corn whiskey and Cointreau, he could not shake them. Judicious retreat, especially in the face of overwhelming superiority, has always been a military weapon, and no captain, no matter how valiant, has ever feared to use it. Pop, George Thario had retorted good-humoredly, you dragged in the metaphor, not I. You've heard of the Alamo and Vicksburg and Corregidor? Well, this is them all rolled into one. End of chapter 4, part H.